Hi, everybody. My name is Dan Copeland. I'm the author of the novel called Let It Be. Today, I'm talking with Joel Eisenberg, who is the author of the novel series called The Chronicles of Era. Hi, Joel. Hey, Dan. How are you today? Good. How are you? I am good. I've been up since 1.30 this morning. I'm very caffeinated, so I'm ready to go. All right. Well, let me ask you this. Your your series, The Chronicles of Ara, has a fascinating and quite possibly the most unique uh, premise, and uh, and that is that you, you start to examine the mechanics of creativity. How did you get to that, that, that because, moment where you said, I have to write this story? You know what, Dan? It, it's interesting. Like so many other writers, and I'm sure like yourself, who has had other careers and other and, and professions that, that you do outside of your writing, you've always been, for as long as I've known you, very creative. You're a writer. You're an actor. So many people here in Los Angeles or New York or around the rest of the country, around the rest of the world, I'm sure, I find are inspired by creating art. I also find that creating art for many people is therapeutic. As for me, if I wasn't in Starbucks at 5 o'clock every morning writing diligently, I think I'd lose my mind. Terrence Stamp, the actor who played, among other roles, he played General Zod in Superman 2 with Chris Reeve. He said if he wasn't an actor, he'd be a, a serial killer. So I, I'm convinced that everybody needs that outlet. And when I saw, we're going to go to 70, 1977, when I saw Star Wars for the first time, at the end of the movie when uh, Luke and Leah and Han Solo were uh, in the awards ceremony, Luke and Han Solo were getting their medals, I, I literally, the credits came right up after. My family stands up and goes in the back, and I couldn't move my legs. My legs were totally numb. I don't know what hit me. It was some kind of weird, bizarre religious experience or something. And I had never before encountered that powerful a story on the screen. I was 13 years old. And I said, I got to do this. I want to do this. I was always that shy kid from Brooklyn who used to bury himself in his room reading comic books and writing short stories like the crew of the Starship Enterprise scenes with, scenes with uh, Colonel Steve Austin, the $6 million man, to go down and save the world from the planet of the apes. So doing stuff like this and seeing Star Wars throughout my life really made me think about what is that spark? What does it really mean to be creative? What does a creative person do, and what is a creative person? These obsessions kind of followed me and uh, ultimately ended up with me teaming with Steve Hiller to write these books. Right. I think for me, I had kind of you know a similar background and experience um, when I was you know in my adolescence. I was always very sick, so I had a lot of time where I found myself as an observer of life rather than a participant in life. And one of the things that always seemed to uh, spark me were, were the movies and um, the films that had really big impact on me during that period. One of them was Ingmar Bergman's The Seventh Seal. And I had come so close to dying myself that, uh, and having been a chess player most of my, my adolescence as well, 
the concept of playing a, a chess game with death absolutely fascinated me. Um, and that's really how I got hooked on the concept of creating stories and really, really focused on making movies. Um, so yeah, I mean, there's something in, in the act of creating, it's almost godlike, I think, in that you tap into something that is intangible and from that exercise, you produce something that has never existed before. Dan, I've always considered you a uh, something of an intellectual. Now, you and I have, you go back about 10 years or so. So right. we know each other. And the thing is, let's delve into that. So, you know, Young talked about archetypes. And let's say archetypes are memories that are stored in a person from generations upon generations upon generations ago. Mm -hmm. And what happens is when you encounter something that uh, taps into those archetypes, the response is something stronger than you could really define. Right. It's a, it's a gut feeling. It's something that, emanates from, like you said, somewhere down deep. You related to The Seventh Seal, which incidentally is also one of my favorite films. And I, I didn't almost die as a child, but I too was fascinated by chess played with death. I was also a chess player. And the imagery, the stark black and white imagery in that film was just eerie to me. And the thing, it, what, it, what it does is... It, it, it's almost like creation itself is something that I think everybody can do, but not everybody necessarily needs to. There are people who will work and they'll work their jobs and make their money and have their kids and, and, and create those lives for themselves. And that's fantastic. That's great for them. For the more creative individuals, we don't live conventionally or many of us don't, or some of us do, but what happens is privately you pine for something more and you're not happy. So there was something you need to build. Building is a construct. Where does that need to build come from? With the Chronicles of Aura, what I did is I sort of took the mythology of the Greek muses and I made them into one. There is one muse who inspires all of art and creativity, and that muse is named Aura. What happens is Aura, in the first book, becomes corrupted. Now, if the muse who inspires all of art and creativity becomes corrupted, what then happens to our art? What are the long-term effects of our art? Is there an endgame to our art? By extension, is there an endgame to man? Is man? Does man's creation mean something? Is man's creation leading somewhere the collective of man's imagination in these stories too and by exploring these concepts um among them an exploration of our dark darker writers like lovecraft and poe mary shelley J.R. tolkien and on and on my contention is these writers tended to peek into their darker natures more than most and what they came back with was something that lasted something that had impact and influence. Frankenstein, 
help inspire medicine and more. Other books have helped inspire whatever it was that, that, that they dealt with. People say the Bible inspired wars. You know, it goes back to the influence of these particular creations, that these creations are being um, invented by or if these creations are emanating from the mind of man. What really is going on there? Where are we taking ourselves as a species? And that's what the series tends to uh, to be. And by being so heady about it and drinking an awful lot of coffee and being alone at Starbucks at five o'clock in the morning, I get uh, very much into my own head and explore uh, that darker nature. And it's uh, it's a fascinating process. Indeed. I know for me... Um... One of the things that uh, that kind of ties into the concept of darkness is that um, in my in my times of sickness, I would often run out of medicine, and uh, of course, I would run out of medicine uh, after all the drugstores had closed, and so I found myself on many many occasions um, up all night watching for the dawn and just studying the darkness and counting the seconds and minutes until my mother could get up and go to the drugstore and get medicine to relieve my uh, illness. And um, as painful and as torturous as that was at the time, um, it's also kind of the way I write. I mean, for many years, I always wrote from the hours of, you know, 1 a.m. to 4 a.m. Um, it was the time when I felt that I was uh, most able to kind of uh, channel or go into the dream state that I go into and I just start writing from that state. So, um, it's, and I, you know, I think that in many respects, creation always comes from, from the darkness because, um, not to get too Star Wars here, but there has to be a balance in the universe and for darkness, there has to be light. So, um, I think that in, in the creative process, beginning in the darkness, it actually serves to illuminate uh, humanity. And that's kind of the dynamic, I think, that exists in the universe. Here's my take on that. I don't disagree with that. I, do you follow Joseph, have you followed Joseph Campbell at all? Yes. Okay. So Joseph Campbell is, been a huge influence on me. He's been a huge inspiration to me for since I saw him on the Power of Myth with Bill Moyers all those years ago. And I actually just yesterday was looking at one of his books. I have a bookshelf at home which is devoted to Campbell. And, you know, basically every religion and every philosophy and every ritual has its basis in an original story. There was something from the beginning upon which everything else became corrupted or became adapted and sprang. And the Pope comes out over the weekend and he says something along the lines, I'm paraphrasing of everybody of every faith, faith ultimately leads to the same God at the end. And again, to me, there is something in the power of archetypes and the original storytelling that is actually part of a human being. 
where it is, where it's located, I, I have no idea. But I do think that everybody is creative. Talent in some is innate and it stays there. It stays in the gut. For others, talent needs to be explored. And they need to create it. They need to invent. But right. we need to get back to, you know, the original reason as to why. Who are we as people? What is it in the cosmos that gives us that spark and allows man to build worlds? Literally. And right. that's, that's, that's the question. Right. I know that um, there are some there's some research, and I remember reading a, a book by Robert Ardrey, who was a screenwriter but also a an anthropologist. I think a self-taught anthropologist, and um, he had come up with uh, the concept that memories might be uh, trans, you know, embedded in DNA and transferred from generation to generation, and. Um, I think that you know the concept of these archetypes that affect uh, humans across all genders and all nationalities and all you know faiths and and religions um, are are possibly and I, and I think I read something recently that there is some research that suggests that memories are now there is research that suggests that indeed memories can be embedded in the DNA and transferred from generation to generation. Um, which is kind of fascinating, but let me ask you a question. So you came up with this idea of of, of a, a muse at the heart of the creation of all humanity, and that that if this muse got corrupted, it might be the end of of the world as we know it. So what kind of research did you do after you came up with this concept to uh, to enable you to begin writing? You know, it's an interesting question. It wasn't so much research. It was an exploration of my obsessions. And, you know, on the research side, what I did have to do is research every author that I profiled because, in part, these books um, are seen through the eyes of two kind of legendary, darker authors each book. The first book was J.R. Tolkien and Lewis Carroll. The second book was uh, Mary and Percy Shelley. And uh, Carlo Collodi, who wrote uh, Pinocchio. And, mm-hmm. you know, third book is, is Jules Verne, H.G. Well, I mean, we, we really get into it. And the thing is, the primary research I had to do is what inspired these gifted creators in their individual careers. What inspired them to write their greatest art? And in the case of, for example, Robert Louis Stevenson, he was woken up in the middle of the night by his wife when he was having a nightmare. And he's like, why did you wake me up? I was dreaming a fine bogey tale. That bogey tale became Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. So right. obviously this is something that came from deep within. But that was my primary research. is I wanted to really explore the lives and works of these artists as accurately as humanly possible. So that required a lot of research in and of itself. Pathology required some research. But my primary research, for lack of a better word, was really just taking a real deep, dark look at my own obsessions and what were the reasons for those obsessions. Why am I so compelled to create and kind of go from there? I know for me that um, once I came up with the idea for my book, Let It Be, um, which is a pretty wild tale about what happens when death falls in love with a human being. The, the things that I did immediately um, 
is I started looking at, you know, like you, myths, myths across many different uh, faiths and, and nationalities. And I was looking for a way to kind of tell my story um, because my I, I based a lot of this book on my personal experiences and my encounters with death. And um, what happened to me is that after the many years of sickness in my adolescence and, and learning that I had almost died, I began to wonder, why am I still here? You know, uh, I might have been dead 15 minutes ago, but I'm still here. And uh, in addition to the seventh seal, um, the myths that I looked at were, you know, the the Orpheus uh, myth, um, some of the the Celtic myths, Finn McCool and his legend, the Aztec uh, myths and and ritual around the Day of the Dead. And um, from these, I was able to kind of cobble or engage in a form of alchemy where I was able to take bits and pieces from all these these traditions and create a new tradition, uh, if I may be so bold as to say it, that um, enco- encompasses these but tells the story of of the choices that we get to make in our life and how um, even sometimes when we beginning making the wrong choice we can still redeem ourselves in the last second and make the right choice exactly and you know it's very interesting too because your book is very you know it's 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 very personal number one but it's 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 unique it's different in a good way i compared your work to the work of david lynch but the work mm-hmm. of David Lynch, you know, and, and I've said this to you before, but the work of David Lynch, which is interesting, comes to me, it's it's the stuff of nightmare. Um, now, I'm not saying Twin Peaks is a horror show or, you know, Eraserhead maybe was a horror film, but, I mean, his imagery, his worldview, so to speak, his darkness comes from, I'm sure, a place that is deep within him. With you, there was David Lynch and more personal. You know, it's funny because in my aura books, the reason aura became corrupted is because she witnessed the death of a mortal she loved by afar. And you have a human with death. So, you know, it's an interesting sort of similarity. And, you know, whether, you know, your characters, Yeats Dane and Richard Bradford, Archibald Stanton, you are able to create something completely different. And yet, when I read it, I wasn't surprised that it was written by Dan Copeland. I don't know if that makes any sense. But it's, you have a very unique vision, but your vision clearly to me came from life. Your story, your mythology was inspired by life. And you're very brave because you have a certain kind of darkness that a lot of people would not be able to necessarily get on paper. Let it be, it's something I would recommend to everybody listening to this, not just because I'm a guest. It's a very interesting piece. 
It's a very interesting piece. Dan, is it is it now in uh, Amazon and Barnes and Noble? Yes, yes, as as are your your great books as well. Um, yeah. So yeah, you know, it's no, interesting. But... Go ahead. No, 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 no. I was just going to say, what were you going to say? What were you going to say? Well, it's interesting that 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 you you know the darkness and and the references to David Lynch. Um, and in your your story, there's an immortal, godlike figure that is breathed over the death of a human. And in my story, it's kind of a flip side. Uh, but again, the concept of of an immortal, otherly being being involved with humanity, it's a story. You know, I told this the this, the idea of this book to many people across many different nationalities. And what I'm finding is. When I say when I tell them the story, they say, "Oh yeah, that sounds like a story from India, where I'm from." Or, "Oh yeah, that sounds like a story from Mexico, where I'm from." And not that I set out consciously to tap into what we would call this archetype, but it, it appears that um, I did, in fact, stumble on it, and it is something that's a very universal and a very powerful emotional human connection that somehow captures people's imaginations irrespective of where they're born or their social station or what language they speak. Yeah, I, I find it fascinating in, in that I guess for want of a better word, I find myself kind of a channel. Um, you know, one of the, the lead character in the in my book is 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 Etram Etaf, and she is the angel of death. And while I was writing the book, I I just channeled her. And as you know, I'm a Buddhist and I've uh, been a, a practicing Buddhist for 30 years. And I realized many years after I had completed the book that that her arc. In the in the story, she was serving the function of a Buddha, and I kind of really found that to be mind-boggling. Have you ever had an experience like that? Yeah, pretty consistently, actually, because to me, the the actual the very art of writing is the art of channeling. When I this is this is where it goes to me, and and this sounds very bizarre, but I put this on Facebook of all things, and there are actually people who have very similar experiences. I lucid dream, uh, vivid dream. You know, I, I, my, my dreams are very, very vivid. And there are times if I want to dream, it's the weirdest thing. If I want to dream a story, I sleep on my left side. <laughs> and I know it's the weirdest thing. And so what happens is I go through typically this whole big, epic, monstrous adventure that seems like it takes place over weeks and weeks and weeks. And then I'll wake up, as I'm wont to do, because I'm not a good sleeper, and I'll see only about five minutes have passed since I fell asleep. And then I'll go back to sleep and try to repeat it, and it doesn't happen. Right. And yet I feel like I just went through this whole adventure. I sleep on the other side on the right. And my dreams are just kind of, you know, humdrum. And mm -hmm. I don't always want to go in a, in a big adventure, which is an interesting thing. The humdrum dreams 
I'll, I'll sort of wake up from and I'm more tired after, but the other are more inspired. But the point is you mentioned channeling and he asked me if I experienced it. And yeah, I find out that after I have a very vivid dream, I'm able to dream with my eyes open in Starbucks where from the subconscious to the mind, to the arms, to the fingers, to the keyboard, these experiences come out. It's almost like having those dreams and just channeling them. It's almost like being in another world. So you, again, you know, getting back to yours, getting back to let it be for a minute, very interesting. You have a collection of scenes, some of which break up where you don't necessarily expect it, but it's almost permeated by death. You have a scene, you know, a guy's in a car. He's a driver. He's playing Russian roulette, Russian roulette with a revolver. And so someone's playing Russian roulette. He's going to go for it. He's not going to go for it. What do, you have, what do you have him do in there? He pauses so he can smoke a crack pipe. And I'm reading this, and I'm like, what is it inside of Dan Copeland that allows him to see this? Because that, to me, which is a tiny part of the whole, just you know, a scene, it was just fascinating to me that this guy who very possibly was about to meet death, and like he wanted to meet death, what does he do? He pauses and he smokes a crack pipe. And then he goes back. And I know Dan doesn't, you know, smoke crack. And I know Dan, you know, doesn't play Russian roulette and all of this type of thing. And yet it came from you. You got that from somewhere. It came from some place. And when you talk about on this interview that you lived with death growing up, you didn't know if you were going to die. You, you know, if the stores were closed at night and you needed medication, you counted the stars and you counted the minutes and you counted the hours. And I think as a result of how your synapses worked and your memories, which I do believe, by the way, that I do absolutely believe that memories are in the DNA. I believe that for a long time. I question sometimes whether the concept of human imagination itself is not imagination at all, but just memory. I know we can get all over the map with that and it sounds like I'm nutty, but I can almost guarantee anybody listening to this has probably had a lot more nutty thoughts than that when, you know, you spend time with yourself. So you never know where these ideas come from. But for some of us, we are tools, we are channels, and we have to get those ideas visible. We have to make them right. visible. We have to make them happen. We have to put them on paper. We have to paint them. We have to sculpt whatever it is. We have to put them to music, whatever it is, but we have to get those ideas out. Indeed. Indeed. And. Well, let's talk about this for a second. What advice would you have give to somebody who wants to write a book but's never written one before? Okay. If this person really wants to write a book, if you don't do it, you are going to regret it. You're going to look back when you're 90 and you're going to say, I never wrote the great American novel. And then you're going to ask yourself why, and you're not going to come up with any sort of answer that makes sense. So you may as well just grab the bolt by the horns to 
quote a cliche, and start writing. I got news for you. A lot of people don't want to write because they're intimidated by the keyboard. If you're intimidated by the keyboard, you think it's a lot of work? Well, there's something called Dragon Dictation. Most computers and iPads have it, or you can order it. Speak into your computer. It'll put your words on Microsoft Word, and you can edit it later. Before you know it, you have a book. Right. You can sit there and you can close your eyes and you can drink your cognac or whatever you want to do. Just talk to your computer, see what you come up with. It'll scare you to death. And then you'll realize that, wow, I have all of this inside me, and that may just open your eyes. Yeah. It sounds for me that, you know, there are many myths about writers facing the blank page and being terrorized by it or having writer's block. But I've actually never had that problem. And I think one of the things that I do that makes writing for me uh, not a, a, a scary thing but actually an adventure is that um, before I sit down to write, I kind of outline the story uh, as much as possible so that I know um, where I'm beginning, what I want the middle to look like, and what the end should be. And often ideas that, you know, oh, I would be reading something or hear something or come up with a, a word or a phrase, and I'd say, oh, that would be a great beginning for a story. Where would it go next, and how would it end? Or conversely, I'll go the other way. Wow, that'd be a great ending for a story. Now, how do we get there? And uh, once I have that inspiration and that spark, I start doing research by, uh, you know, reading all the books and seeing the movies that have, have you know, uh, visited that territory and seeing what they've done. And then from that, I extrapolate ideas and maybe ways to twist things or or bend them in, in a manner that has not been done before that makes it fresh and exciting so that the reader doesn't get too far ahead of the story, that they're always in the moment asking themselves, what's going to happen next? It's interesting. you know. It, it, it's particularly interesting what you just said to me. Because I hate outlining. Everybody is different. I cannot stand outlining. Now, that said, The Chronicles of Aura encompasses eight books, I, want, I chose a number eight because I wanted something to go full circle. And that rebirth from the Bible, I looked at it, it was number eight. And I'm right. not a religious guy at all. And it's going to be over a million words by the time it's finished. The third book is coming out at the end of next month, plus three spinoff books are coming out. So all told, we're looking at about a million point five words, and this is what I did. I wrote the first chapter of the first book on the first day. And also on the first day, I wrote the last chapter of the last book. Wow. So I know how it I know how it opens, I know how it ends, and now I just gotta fill in and how to get there. And that's <laughs> how I've been writing the Chronicles of Art. Very cool, very cool. That's gonna be a great journey, I think. Well you know well, why for me Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean as you're writing, do you ever find yourself really surprised at the ideas you're coming up with? Oh, completely. Completely. And <laughs> This is going to sound really, really cocky, but I can almost guarantee that every other writer out there has felt the same way. Here's why it's going to sound cocky. There are times I'll read something back and I'll be like, damn, boy, you're a genius. I'm not no genius. I'm a, I'm a human being. And as a human being, I think we get in touch with things that we, we never could have imagined. And here's a case in point that may lessen the cockiness aspect of it and may make some sense. Look at the world around you and look at what we have created from 
things that fly in the sky called airplanes to man walking on the moon to, you know, um, holograms and on and on and on and cell phones, iPads. Look at this technology. We came up with this. So obviously we do have it in us to be those geniuses. And there are so many people that are out there that will never write the book because they're scared or they're intimidated or whatever the reason. And they will not, by virtue, get in touch with their own prodigious talent. So the thing is, look around you for the proof of my statement. It sounds cocky, sure. But to almost guarantee, like I said, every other writer out there, and I'm sure this is probably happening to you. You look at something that you wrote on the page and it's like, oh my God, I'm brilliant. Where did that come from? Has that ever happened to you? Well, yeah, but more, more excitingly for me at least is since I don't really consider myself to be a novelist, this is my first novelist novel. Um, what's really blown me away is that the response of people who are complete strangers who've read it and, and, um, and and how much they actually got everything I was trying to communicate and how much they are affected by it. The, some of the reviews that I've gotten on, on Amazon and Goodreads and, and Barnes and & Noble are just um, uh, just so heartwarming in the sense that you have to understand that when I was in grade school and all the way through college, whenever I did a write, writing assignment for a class, I would get shredded by the teacher because they didn't like my punctuation, they didn't like my spelling. And um, I mean, even when I was at NYU Film School in my freshman year, they wanted to send me to a remedial English class because they didn't think I could write English. Um, and then to to have people respond in such a positive and, and deeply moving manner to the words that I've written um, it, it actually makes me cry sometimes because it's so, um, I guess, validating is a word, but um, it is rewarding to get that kind of feedback from people who read your work. Do you agree that uh, certain artists, do you believe that certain artists or artists in general are more sensitive than, than others? Well, I think yes. Um I tend to think that they may not be more, well, yes, sensitivity, but sensitivity based on an acute awareness of, of their existence. I think, you know, I think that our, yes, yes. There awareness, is aware, awareness is a good word. Awareness is well, a real good word. Right. And, and an awareness that is almost self-observed, I think. Although, having said that, I have to say that, you know, one of the things that, that I continue to learn as I study and, and work on my craft as an actor, and that is, is at some point, there, and, and Bruce Lee mentions it in his book, The, the Tao of Jeet Kune Do, where the id takes over. And yep. we can call that your instinct or your inspiration. But at some point, I think that that as an actor, I, I've come to the point where I'm willing to go with my instinct and just fly with the id and see where it goes. And when I do that, particularly when I'm, you know, in front of the computer at two o'clock in the morning, 
that the results are are remarkable. Bruce Lee and I have the Tao of Jeet Kune Do at home as well, and he was so much more than a martial artist. Indeed. You know, he Bruce Lee. You know, this was always kind of my thing with Bruce Lee because I also was that guy who had Bruce Lee posters, you know, growing up. And I still have my nunchucks and and things like this. But Bruce Lee was more than a martial artist. If he wasn't more, then he was what a martial artist should be, should aspire to. But Bruce Lee, to me, was almost that. There, There are no limits to the human mind, but to the human physical I believe there are limits. And I think he was just so peaked out at the limits of human physicality of what a human could be that he flamed out. Mm. Now I, I know, I know how he died. I know, you know, he was a Betty Ting Pei and, and, and the whole deal. I, I go through the story A to Z. Um, but in that regard, I think he was very similar to Michael, ja- Michael Jackson. And, you know, Michael Jackson, we all know how he died too, you know, drug overdose, all of this. But Michael was much the same way. He was at such a phenomenal peak of potential in the sense of physicality that there wasn't much more, much higher that he could go. Mm. And people like this are extreme artists to me. Um, And it shows... They, they're teachers, and yeah, you know Michael Jackson has had his his you know controversies and all of this, and, you know, which, which most of which I don't believe, uh, probably all of which I don't believe, because I I have friends that mutual friends of Michael's, and uh, they knew him very very well, and they each and every one insists to this day that he just was that guy. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, yeah, he was brutal when it came to negotiations and stuff like this. He wasn't the the high pitched Michael Jackson, nice, loving guy. He, in that regard, he was made it nice, but he was also a brutal negotiator, and uh, he was very business savvy in a lot of ways. In a lot of ways, he wasn't. But as far as you know, dance and artistry and singing and all of this, you're not going to get much better. Bruce Lee was very much the same. And I think a lot of writers that are tortured are some of our finest writers. Mary Shelley had a monstrous life, no pun intended. Edgar Allan Poe had a horrible life in in the sense that, I'm not saying he didn't have his moments, but what I'm referring to is that he had his demons. And he, and yet his prose is so florid and so beautifully dark. He was able to just just write it like nobody else. Mm-hmm. And it, it's an interesting sort of thing. Now, I'm not saying all writers are self-destructive or all artists are self. I'm not self-destructive. You're not self-destructive. But the thing is, what goes on in your head, what goes on in my head, may very well be a lot of those same thoughts that other writers who have to take to the bottle or do drugs have to do that to deal with those thoughts. I don't know. I just think that there's a lot there. And I think some people are just scared 
to allow their humanity to flow. And I think creativity and creation is the art of allowing humanity to flow naturally without turning away. Right. That's kind of kind of relates to the argument of my book, Let It Be, which is, um, you know, in our society, particularly in these modern times in the Western culture, everybody really is afraid of death, the concept of it, talking about it. And um, actually, the idea for this, the, the novel came to me when I was watching The Sopranos, and uh, the Lorraine Branco character is saying, well, knowledge of our death is this gift. And I said, well, what the heck is she talking about? And, I mean, the argument of let it be is that if you really want to live life to its fullest, you also have to really embrace death to the fullest. Um, and, uh, you know, that, that whole concept of fear um, and, 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 and apprehension about things that um, are dark, I think, you know, that artists – as artists, one of the things that I think artists are is pathfinders for the rest of humanity. And that because we have the foolhardiness or the courage or the awareness to look at, at darkness or death and, and embrace it and explore it and communicate that journey to our readers or the people who watch our films or experience our works, we help humanity rise to a level of enlightenment. Hmm. Interesting. I'm with you. And and you said something, too, that hit a nerve. You know, there are times where, okay, a long time ago, I used to be afraid to fly. And today I love flying. I mean, I could be in an airplane all day long. I love, love flying. But right. I remember... Back in, gosh, it must have been 25, almost 30 years ago, I had one horrific flight from New York, I'm sorry, from California to New York, and I was dreading going back from New York to California, and it, it was just a nightmare flight, and I swear, I thought every hair was, was standing on end. And I realized after the flight, I went into bed at my parents' house, and, and I'm just kind of like I was thinking about it. And I'm like, you know, I asked an older woman who I was sitting next to, who had the window seat, I turned to her in the middle of the flight and I said, this doesn't bother you, huh? She goes, eh, when you're my age, you don't care. Just yeah. like that. Okay? I'm like, what does that mean? And she's like, oh, you know, it's going to happen to me sooner than it's going to happen to you, hopefully. So, you know, I don't care. It's a few bumps. And it was just an interesting thing because then I started thinking, okay, so the person across from me was carrying a baby, and that plane was really, really shaking. What would that baby know? Nothing. He was sleeping. And if he was awake, he wouldn't have known about death. He would have been oblivious. And so then I start thinking, all right, well, it's everything that's been pounded into my head over the years and years and years about what death is and what death can be. And maybe death is something completely else. Maybe it's not the end. Who knows what it is? We know nobody knows. So why should I spend every day fearing it? And so for whatever reason, the, the after effects of that, which, which is quirky as hell to me, 
is that I love flying. Like I said, I can do it constantly. And uh, I, I've never had a problem on uh, New York City subways. I love subways since I was a kid. Yet you put me in an elevator and I get panicky to this day. I take elevators and somebody else goes in. Always. I never take elevators by myself. When we were in Nashville and we're speaking to filmmakers and I had to go up to the room, I waited until there were a couple of people at that elevator uh, thing, the door. And I left this day and I cannot put two and two together there. I cannot reconcile that. Hmm. Well, that is interesting. Yeah, so, I don't know what, um, what made me even get into all that, but anyway. Yeah, well, it's a concept of death and fear. There you and, go. Uh, you know, uh, Dan Copeland is hypnotizing me, ladies and gentlemen. He's making me admit these deep, dark things about myself. There you go. So let me ask you. I mean, going back to Let It Be, and you know, we've had this conversation for many years. Um, what are the things about it that surprise you the most, or fascinated you most about the story? One of the things I guess I, that fascinates me most about your story is sort of what I was saying before. I think it's a detriment. And I think it's a positive. And the big part of me thinks it's a positive. The part of right. me that thinks it's a debt, the part of me that thinks, let me explain this, because by no means do I want you or anybody listening to get the wrong idea of what I just said. What I'm meaning by detriment is this. This is a story to me as a producer that has so much potential as a film. I think this book can break down barriers in much the same way that Eraserhead did with David Lynch. In much the same way that certain other films are firsts, like you've never seen them before, and you're not going to see them again anytime soon, because they were so different in their vision, they were so unique, it made an impact. And then other films were made that copied this. I, when I say detriment, I don't know any producer in this business right now and I really want to be wrong on this. I really want to be wrong on this. But I don't know any producer that would take on this project without saying, I want to change this, I want to change this, I want to change this. Now, the thing is, I think you're going to get a lot of producers that when they read this, they're going to want this. Because of exactly what I said. Because of how unique the story is. It's It's... Everything that somebody who wants something different would love. And yet what happens is, I think, like I said, you're going to get all this attention once you really get it out there. And then they're going to say they want to change everything. And I think they're going to want to change everything because they may not understand the nuance, the nuances of some of this. They may not understand the subtleties of some of this stuff. A lot of what you write, to me, is symbolic. You know, before we were doing the interview, out of every film ever made, you, you know, in the book is mentioned Children of Paradise. Okay, Yeats, I believe, goes into the theater, and Children of Paradise is there, and he's playing, and you know, Atrium is with him, and he, all the stuff, and and he's dying, and you know, there, there's the gunshot, and all. The, the, the point is that you're going to get a producer and going to say, I love this, I want to buy this. It is such a unique vision. And I think it's detrimental to the integrity of your book. I think Dan Copeland should produce this himself. I think that this lends itself to a different kind of film. But more importantly, 
I think this lends itself to a career. And I think if you're able to, to make this work, if you're able, for those listening, a big part of making movies, obviously, is finding the money to make the movies. Movies are not cheap. But if you're somehow able, with your unique vision, to figure out a unique way of making this happen, I think the world of cinema, global cinema, the look, this, let, let me go back because I'm stumbling a little bit. The Seventh Seal impacted you like no other movie, correct? Yeah. Okay. You're not the only person who have been impacted by Igmar Bergman's films, yet if Bergman was alive today, do you think that these films would be made in America? Probably not. No. The, you know, the thing is, the vision was so unique, Bergman created a movement that had never been seen in, in films before. Antonioni did the same type of thing. Dan Copeland could do this because it is so different. Your work is so different. Your, your view is so different. And with all of this, and death, and human, and, and all of this, you're also a Buddhist. So that informs your worldview, too, and that informs your art, too, because there was something in the Buddhist philosophies that work for you, that are meaningful to you, that is a way of life for you. And I just think that you yourself need to break down these barriers. Find the money, Dan. I'll be first in line. Okay. Well, on that note, I'm talking with Joel Eisenberg, the author of The Chronicles of Aura, a series of books about the mechanics of muses and creation. And Joel, where can people get your books? Uh, Barnes & Noble, Amazon.com, Kindle, and wherever fine books are sold. And I'm Dan Copeland, author of the novel Let It Be, a wild and ripping tale of what happens when death falls in love with a human. With a very profound message, and it's available from Amazon, uh, Barnes & Noble, and uh, on that note... Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you all in your dreams. Bye-bye.